0: So Genesis chapter 33, um, there was a man, perhaps you heard, uh, who was going through a particular time of stress and anxiety in his life. And um, as he went in and sat with his psychiatrist and and sought to try to express and communicate the things that were going on inside of him, he he, he said, you know, it's the strangest thing that you probably won't understand. He said, but sometimes I feel like I'm a teepee. And he said that sometimes I feel like I'm a wigwam. And then I feel like I'm a teepee. And then I feel like I'm a wigwam. And a psychiatrist said, I know exactly what's wrong with you. I said, what is it? Tell me. She said, you're too tense. (laughs) Get it? Get it? It's really bad, right? (laughs) But I think that really is a common problem with many of us, isn't it? If I were to say tonight, you know, what is one of the big things you deal with, you'd probably say I'm a little bit too tense. And stress, anxiety, things that are very common, very familiar to us in uh, the times in which we live. I heard of a company uh, somewhere in Europe that developed a product that was uh, mainly for executives, people in high pressure, high power positions, And they put a bracelet on their wrist, and it was um, normally yellow, but it had a way of measuring their blood pressure, certain other um, signals. And when they began to become too stressed out or, or, or too much tension, the light would turn red. You know, and so that was an indication to them that they should calm down, that they should uh, take a deep breath, that they should be careful how they act and behave. And I thought, you know, how interesting, but if, if we all had one of those, we would just be walking around with red bracelets on all the time. Like, people would just be like, what's that red light on your thing? <laughs> you know, because it's just something that we deal with. I mean, we live in very high-pressure world. And when we look at the man Jacob, as we come to this portion of his life, we realize that he has been a man whose red light would have been on for the past 20 years. He had left his home 20 years before where we meet him in our texts now, on bad terms with his brother, fearing for his life. He had gone out with absolutely nothing, using rocks for a pillow. He had come into a land where he fell on good providence and uh, married two wives, one that he wanted, one that he didn't, and immediately felt the pressures of a rapidly expanding family. He had tense marriage and family relationships all of that time. He had an oppressive employer who was constantly using and abusing his services. There was conflict that continued to escalate, crescendo, and grow throughout the time that he was there. Until finally, God moved in such a way that Jacob released. But even in releasing, there was tension, anxiety, and stress. And as he ran away from Laban, he found out that Laban was pursuing him. And running from Laban, there was a conflict and an interaction with him. And then breaking free from that, God sparing him, he turns around and right in front of him, he catches word that his brother, whom he had burned 20 years ago was now coming toward him with 400 men and again jacob finds himself in a place of great anxiety and the night before the meeting that he'll have with his brother esau in the pitch blackness of the night in complete isolation the lord shows up and begins to wrestle with jacob And all night long, there is this physical, literal altercation that takes place between Jacob and his God over his identity and over the crookedness of his own heart and over the wrestling match that he himself is having with the fact that there's a God who loves him and that he is a resistant to that love. And in the wake of all of that now, Jacob arises to have this final meeting where Esau and him will now come face to face for the last time. And it's where we pick up in our text and it's chapter 33, verse one. And it says that Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, Esau came and with him 400 men and he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and to the two handmaids according as they belong to each. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And so he kind of places them in the priority of value that they are to him, thinking, well, at least, you know, they'll die in order of how much I like them. (laughs) This doesn't bode well for him, especially later on. You begin to wonder why they hated Joseph so much. But it says that he passed over before them and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him. Now you wonder what's going on in Jacob's mind as he sees Esau charging to us. Is this it? (laughs) My whole life is flashing before my eyes. And it says that he embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And so four words to describe this meeting that has so long been anticipated by Jacob. He ran to meet him, he embraced him, he fell on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. Now, that's an amazing and remarkable climax to this thing that has been building for all of this time, the source of incredible anxiety in uh, Jacob's life. Now, I want you to just think about in your life some of the times that you have been the most stressed out about something that's coming in your life. Maybe like Jacob, there's something relationally that happened at some point along the way, and the time of reckoning finally comes. Or maybe there's a stressful situation in your business or your industry or at your work. Or something happens, you know, that's just so unique to you, there's no way anyone could even uh, communicate it. But it's just this source of great stress that you've been awaiting. But then that time comes, that reckoning comes, and the outcome of it is so far different from what you expected that it would ever be. And isn't it amazing how often the things that we fear the most and that we stress about the most never really materialize and become the great deal that we make it. And we see that exactly happening here with Jacob. He's been fearing for so long. He's been running for so long from this interaction. And when it finally comes, he finds it to be exactly the opposite of what he expected. Now, consider that, this stress and anxiety that jacob has been feeling comes in spite of the fact that he has had all along god's word that god is going to look out for him and protect him he's had that promise all along you remember way back at the beginning when jacob first went out 20 years ago and he was laying upon those rocks It says that god showed up to him and god gave him a promise. It's genesis chapter 28 verse 15 And there god spoke to jacob and he said to him He said I am with you and I will keep you in all places where you go and I will bring you again Into this land for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of and then Jacob, in response to that, praised down in verse 21 of the same chapter. And he said, if you're with me so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. So Jacob heard that God promised to him that he would preserve him and that Jacob would come back into the land. Again, God had spoken to Jacob after his, or, or prior to his departure from Laban in Genesis chapter 31, verse 3. It says that the Lord said unto Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So just in recent days, God had spoken to Jacob again, saying, I'm going to be with you, and you will come back into the land. In Genesis chapter 32, after the interaction with Laban, when Laban was sent home and Jacob was unharmed, it was there that Jacob saw the host of the Lord. He saw the angels, the protection of God in the supernatural that was all around him, surrounding him and keeping him. He saw it and even declared with his mouth and he called the name of the place Mahanaim, which means the place of two hosts. So he saw with his own eyes the fact that God was with him, that God was protecting him and God was preserving him. Thus he had the promise and the word of God Yet in spite of that the anxiety of what was coming still didn't depart from him Not only did he have the word of god and the vision from god, but he had also processed this Feeling that he's experiencing through prayer and we looked at that last week in the prayer of jacob And how he brought it before the lord and he even spoke out of his own mouth the history that he had with god The faithfulness of god the promises of god. He spoke to himself according to the things of god And and in spite of that, he was still feeling anxiety concerning this thing that's to come. And I know that in this time, even in this setting, even here right now among us, there are people in here that you're dealing with anxiety. You're dealing with stress and pressure. And you're a child of God. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. You have the promise of God. You even handle it the right way you handle it by prayer and speaking to god And yet you find that you still can struggle with stress and anxiety And what I want you to know tonight is that what you're going through and what you're experiencing is common to the people of god Even the abraham's isaacs and jacobs that we esteem and think that they had no problems at all It's a real part of the fallen human condition. We are imperfect beings living in a fallen world. And thus sometimes we experience these things. Now you say, well, is that the prognosis then? If I have stress and anxiety in my life that God is powerless to remove that from me? No, absolutely not. But sometimes it isn't a light switch that God flips and all of a sudden it's gone. But sometimes there's a process of God working in us and winning our trust to the place where that anxiety fades away in the light of his presence and of his goodness and of his power that he provides for us. I love the passage in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 6. and its 10 verses, it's verse 25 all the way through 34, the last 10 verses of chapter 6. It's a familiar passage to many of us, and Jesus said these words, he said, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. The word thought is the word anxiety. He said, Take no anxiety. In some translation it says take no anxious thought. That's a good translation. He says, Take no anxious thought for your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body what you will put on. Is not the life more than me and the body more than clothing? Behold, the fowls of the air, they don't sow, neither do they reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? In which of you, by taking thought, again, by anxiety, by anxious thought, can add one cubit to his stature? You can't change the circumstances of your life with anxiety. It's like what somebody said about being anxious it's like sitting on a rocking chair it gives you something to do but it gets you absolutely nowhere verse 28 and why take ye thought or why are you anxious for clothing consider the lilies of the field how they grow they don't toil or spin and yet i say to you that even solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And now we begin to see the issue. Therefore, and here that therefore means here's the conclusion of the matter, take no thought, there's that same word again, take no anxiety. Take no anxious thought, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Verse 34, the conclusion of the entirety. He says, take therefore no thought, no anxiety. For your life or for tomorrow for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof Now when in five times in ten verses jesus says Take no anxiety. What do you think the theme of the passages? What do you think he's trying to say to us there in those words? Now the reason why that's one of my favorite passages concerning this is because not only is it instruction Concerning this concept and topic, but it's actually a command He's commanding and he's saying take no anxiety or take no anxious thought And so in my visual mind what I see is I see maybe it's something invisible some spiritual thing that's happening The bible talks about fiery darts of the enemy. So sometimes I might uh, picture it that way And what I picture is somebody trying to hand me an anxious thought or some anxiety hey, Esau's coming to meet you with 400 men here. And now I have a choice. I can either take that anxious thought and unseal the envelope and read it and go, oh no, Esau's coming with 400 men. It might come in the form of a bill that I have no idea how I'm gonna pay that bill. It might come in the form of a letter or a memo that there's a meeting or you're being called to a meeting. It might come in the form of a prognosis. Or a call, an answer, a message on my voicemail, perhaps uh, from a clinician who says, we've got something we want to discuss with you in the blood work that you just had done. Please come into our office at your earliest convenience, in person. And all of those things that happen to us, it's somebody trying to hand us an anxious thought. It's an anxiety. And what Jesus is saying to us is he's giving not only permission, but the command, he's saying, don't take the anxious thought. Which means when the anxious thought comes... We have permission and command to say no i'm not taking that Now people will look at us and chide us and say well, that's irresponsible You have to take this anxious thought This anxious thought is high priority anxious thought You're head of household This is concerning your health in your future. This concerns you need to take this anxious thought And so we go yeah, I better take the anxious thought and so we take the anxious thought and we begin to Deal with the anxious thought What do you do once the anxious thought gets in? Because sometimes anxious thoughts get through, don't they? I find that my screen has far too large holes in it. Paul the Apostle said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he said, don't worry. In fact, the exact words that he uses, it's Philippians 4, verse 7. He says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And so prayer is request, supplication is reason. So God, I have this anxious thought, I have this anxiety. It's in my heart, and so I'm praying about it. With supplication, so I'm giving reason, Lord, you said. And then with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to god and the peace of god which passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds through christ jesus You say well, how do I deal with the? Infiltration of anxious thoughts. How do I take no anxious thoughts? How does that work out? Practically, you know what the answer is? The answer is take a few of them go ahead take a few And what happens is eventually you get burned out to the point where you say I can't afford to take any more anxious thoughts And then in experience you come like jacob to the place where the fear never materializes Where the thing that you greatly feared doesn't come to pass in the way that it that you thought Or maybe something comes but on the other side of it You see that the outcome is actually good and that god was with you and he knew what he was doing And as we walk through these things as broken people in a fallen world, but yet having a faithful god We begin to realize that we're in safe hands good place with the lord And anxiety begins to fade away as our faith grows and we trust in him Well, jacob has such a moment He's been anxious about this for a long time The meeting comes it doesn't go according to his plan And he finds that god has been faithful god has kept his word Hopefully next time he'll be able to trust god a little bit more Jacob's best effort In trying to deal with this problem himself is that it cost him over 500 animals and it produced a maybe He tried to buy off esau's favor With 500 pieces of livestock. It's a great price and great sum And when asked why he was doing it, he said in chapter 32 verse 20, he said peradventure, or perhaps, maybe, I'll find favor in the sight of Esau. Listen, your and my best effort to try to fix and solve our problems can be very costly and it produces very little. But God's ability to work on our behalf and to take care of the things that He has promised to do in our lives, He's extremely effective, cost-effective and product-effective. In the way that he does things in us he calls us to trust him The fear of jacob never materializes well verse 5 It says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and the children and he said who are those with thee is esau speaking to jacob And jacob said the children which god has graciously given your servant Then the handmaidens came near they and their children and they bowed themselves And leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves and after came joseph near and rachel and they bowed themselves And he said what meanest thou by all this drove which I met all the animals that you sent to me all these waves of Of livestock and servants. What is all this? What does it mean? And jacob said these are to find grace in the sight of my lord If perhaps I might find favor if you might accept my apology for all the things from the past And Esau replied, verse 9, he said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have to yourself. And Jacob said, no, no, I pray thee. If now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore, I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. Same word, Peniel, that he had called the name of the place where he wrestled with Jesus in the previous chapter. He says, I've seen your face as though I've seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. He's saying, this is a fulfillment of what I wrestled through all of last night when I saw God face-to-face and lived. Now I've seen you face-to-face and lived. And it's as though I've seen the face of God here providentially keeping me and helping me in the situation that's here. Please take what I've given to you. Take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough and he urged him and he took it. Now, Here's an interesting thing in the, in the Hebrew language. When Esau said in verse 9 that he had enough, he used the Hebrew word rob, R-A-B, which means much. Esau said, no, no, I've got a lot. I've got much. I'm sufficient. I've got what I need. That's what he said to Jacob. You don't have to give me these animals. But when Jacob said, I have enough in verse 11, he used a different Hebrew word. He used the Hebrew word kol, K-O-L, and the word literally means all or everything. So Esau said, I don't need to take this from you. I have enough. And Jacob said, no, I want you to take it because I have everything. Listen, the person that has God has everything. The person that has God has all. And Jacob can look at Esau and he says, I can afford to lose everything I've got because what I've got is infinitely greater than what I could ever give up or what I could ever lose. Do you know that's always the truth for the child of God? And blessed be the day when we realize it. That what we have in him alone is of greater value than anything and everything that we could ever intrinsically possess. Because when we have him, we have all. We have the source of all life. And Jacob realizes for the first time in his life that he has it all. And so Esau now ready to move forward. He said, let us take our journey and let us go and I will go before thee. O man, the next tedious thing that Jacob has to deal with. Watch it. And he said, Jacob, in reply to Esau, my Lord knows that the children are tender and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them for one day, then all the flock will die. Let my Lord I pray thee pass over before his servant and I will lead on slowly according as the cattle that goes before me and the children are able to endure until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir, which was the area where Esau lived down in what would become Edom later on, Transjordan in the Sinai Peninsula. And Esau said, well, okay, you want to go a different pace than me? Then let me now leave some with you, some of the folks that are with me. And Jacob said, what needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Now there's an interesting dynamic that unfolds between Jacob and Esau now that there's been reconciliation. Because two brothers that had been at odds now find themselves at peace But yet you have one of them who is very much saved, very much in a relationship with God, and in a track and in the plan of God. And you have another one who has absolutely no regard for the things of God at all. Esau, an unregenerate man, a godless man, a self-willed man. And so these two that are related by blood, but very much in opposition according to nature and what God is doing in their life. And now what you have is you have the stronger personality, that being Esau, seeking to form a union and even to exercise leadership over the one who belongs to the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, I will go before you. He says, okay, you're back. You're the new kid on the block in this land. So I will lead now, Esau says, where we will go. Now the will of god for jacob's life and the will of jacob for jacob's life is not at all To be under the influence of this man esau and to go with him Now I ask you here tonight as you sit here Can you relate it all to the circumstance that jacob finds himself in? Have you ever had or do you perhaps even now have in your life? Maybe someone who doesn't understand the way that you think the way that you live the ideals that you hold in the things of God They don't understand those things in your life, but yet they still seek to exercise influence in and over your life It happens very often with perhaps a young married christian couple And there are parents of either the bride or the groom or both That still seek to have a hand and a place in their life And sometimes they cross boundaries And they exercise maybe a little bit too much presence Or maybe a little bit too much attempted influence in their desire to be a part of those kids' uh, new relationship And it can be a challenge and a strain on a young marriage Because they're seeking to establish their own place And figure out God's will for their lives And in all of that, they're dealing with the complication of the presence of parents that are overreaching, not annoying necessarily, not unwelcomed totally, but they're just overreaching and they're crossing boundaries. Sometimes it's not the parents, sometimes it can be just someone else, someone, maybe a friend from the old life or even a sibling from the old life like we have here in the text. And so how does Jacob handle it? How does Jacob establish safe boundaries so that he can still be at peace with Esau, maybe even from a distance, but yet not violate the plan of God and the will of God for his life and still do what he feels God is calling him to do? He gives us a great example. So young couple, listen in because you might need this at some point. Listen. Older married couple that is now experiencing the dynamic of having kids that are getting married Understand that there are boundaries God's dealings and working in them may be different Than what you hope for them or what you think even they're competent to handle and you feel like you need to have a hand in your life Understand that sometimes boundaries need to be established. Well, how does Jacob establish these boundaries? Well, the first thing that he does in his wise refusal of Esau's offer is that he deals with him extremely respectfully. He calls Esau his Lord and he expresses that he himself is Esau's servant. Now, that's not entirely true. In fact, in the mind and the will of God, that's not true at all. But it's the right diplomatic move for Jacob as he's seeking to communicate with his older brother He's saying listen, I understand that you have the lay of this land I understand that you know a thing or two and that you might even be helpful to me You're my older brother. You're experienced in these things. I understand that and he addresses with respect who it is that he's speaking to And so for a younger person to be establishing boundaries with an older person, that's a great place to start to just simply say like I recognize that you're a parent or you have more knowledge in this or more experience in this I understand all of that and I respect that he's respectful to him The second thing that he does is that he's open transparent and rational concerning his position versus esau's position He says to him in verse 13. He says my lord knows that the children are young The flocks and the herds are with young that are with me. And if they're overdriven, even for one day, then all the flock will die. He says, I need to go a different pace than you. You have 400 men. You're well-established. You came here without children and flocks. I have children and flocks. I can't go the same pace as you. I'm in a different stage of life. I'm a different generation and I need to lead. And he says that, notice that he's respectfully clear. Thirdly, when he says Uh, Verse 14, he says, let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead. Do you see those words? Esau had said, I will go before you. I will lead. No, Jacob says, no, 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 no. We're in different places. We go different paces, and I have to lead my family and my entourage in the way that I feel from the Lord is most fitting for his plan for us right now. And so he is open and transparent and rational concerning his position versus his brother's position. He's honest. He says, look, I understand that you have this objective and will and what you want. And I respect that. But you've got to understand that I have a duty and a, and a place and that I have to be free to exercise that in the way that God is leading me now. And he just communicates that respectfully and with transparency. And then finally, fourthly, and lastly, he says to Esau, when he has to, he says, no. Verse 15. He says, let me now, Esau says, leave some with you. And and Jacob says, what need is there? It's not necessary. Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. In the most diplomatic way that he can, he says, no. Can I come stay with you? Can you move into the downstairs of our house? Can you? And he says, no. <laughs> well, it's not necessary. I appreciate the offer, but we'll get there when we get there. Now, amazingly, Jacob never makes it to see her, to Edom. We don't know if this was intentional deception. It certainly wouldn't be unfitting with Jacob's character <laughs> to be deceptive about what his plans actually are. Or maybe he did intend. In, in, in the integrity of his heart to ultimately make it to Seir, we don't know what his intentions were what we do know Is that though jacob Neither himself nor his descendants ever made it to Seir, one day they will And many have seen this passage to be prophetic Because in a time that is yet future The time that the bible calls jacob's trouble the tribulation that will mark the last seven years of human history when the Antichrist launches persecution Against the people of Israel And they're forced to flee their city and their land They will make it to Seir They will go to Edom, to Petra That city that Esau probably pioneered In his descendants so long ago Jacob said, we'll lead on slowly And eventually we'll get there He didn't get there in his lifetime And he hasn't made it yet But one day he yet will. Well, Esau returns that day on his way to see him. Understand the importance sometimes that people need boundaries. And that setting up those boundaries doesn't mean there needs to be a break in the relationship or unfriendly terms on things. Sometimes it's just a thing, a matter of what God is doing in separate individual lives. Well, it says that Jacob journeyed now to Succoth and he built him a house and he made booze for his cattle therefore the name of the place is called Sukkot. now this amazes me He had had a word from god that he is to return where anybody know anybody remember Bethel right He's supposed to go back to bethel where he made the altar at the first unto the lord He has now made it past barrier one. He's escaped from laban He's made it past barrier two. He's gotten through esau And now as he comes, he does not cross the Jordan back even into the land of Canaan, but he stops short of coming into the promised land and he does something that none of the other patriarchs did. He built a house. He's the only one of the three that did. It even says in Hebrews that they dwelt in tents. But here Jacob builds a house. He goes, I made it this far, pretty good. Let's set up shop. Let's settle down for just a little while. You know what's ironic to me in this? Did you know what sukkoth means the place where he built it sukkoth means tents Remember the feast of tabernacles the word tabernacles is sukkot. That's the word the the sukkot is the feast of tabernacles or booths What does it mean? It means that jacob built a house In a place that was intended for tents And I caution you here tonight the same thing can happen to us The bible says that this world is not our home that we're just passing through The Bible says of Jesus, when he came in the flesh to this world, it says that he dwelt among us. The word is tabernacled. He tented among us. Peter spoke of his own body and his own life as a tent. He called himself a pilgrim and a stranger. And he said, I'm just tenting my way through this world. And for you and I that have a home in heaven and our citizenship is in heaven, our hearts are to be already living there. And our relationship with this world is to be very tent-like. We're to be able to lift up our stakes and move at any point as the will of god would Make providence for for us But our tendency in the great temptation is that we build a house in the place of tents That we begin to settle in not i'm not talking about owning a physical house There's nothing wrong with owning a physical house. It's a position of the spirit Have I made this world my home? Symbolically, we see that jacob is Seeking to do that he's seeking to say I want to settle down for a little while It's going to be a tragic move for him for his family and for his future. It doesn't last long It says in verse 18 that jacob came to shalem a city of shechem Which is in the land of canaan when he came from Padan aram and he pitched his tent before the city I think he realized that he was making a mistake And just like we do when we make mistakes. God says hey wake up and he gets back on track and he crosses into the land But I love what it says at the beginning of verse 18 It says that jacob came to shalem a city of shechem Now if you have a new king james or another translation, it's probably more accurate the word shalem Literally means in peace. That's what shalem means And it would be better translating that jacob came in peace To the city of shechem which is in the land of canaan And the reason why that's so remarkable Is because it's a testament to the faithfulness of god Remember what god said to jacob way back in 28 verse 15 that verse that we read earlier He said I will bring you back into this land in peace And we see that god kept his word And that jacob is brought back into the land in peace Do you know that god always keeps his word he's so faithful? And what he says he will do he will do even for the jacob who messes up at every opportunity And that's what jacob did. He got it wrong every time But the bible says that when we're faithless God is faithful still because he can't deny himself. Well, let's read two verses of chapter 34 very important Actually, we're not done with Let's do 19 and 20. Let's do the last two verses of 33 before we cross over It says that he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And there he erected an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel. And so Jacob buys land, doesn't build a house, this time spreads his tent. And he owns a parcel of ground near this area of Shechem that would become Shechem. It's the place where Jacob's well would be dug, where Many years later, Jesus would meet a woman at the well. Many things would happen there in this area. And it says that he erected an altar, called it El Eloher, God, the God of Israel. Now, again, this is partial obedience. God said, go where? To Bethel. He's going to get there eventually. I mean, Jacob's the kind of guy like me that can't just go. I have to be, whoosh, whoosh, you know, like the whip and the whistle, you know, <laughs> would you please? And so he goes almost... But here he builds an altar, he calls it God, the God of Israel. Well, things don't go well in Shechem. It says that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bore unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Havite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. Shechem rapes Dinah. Ugly thing that happens now in the life and in the history of Jacob concerning his daughter, Dinah. Now it tells us there in the first verse of the passage, it says that Dinah went out to see the daughters of the land. The word see that's used there in the Hebrew, it's a word that means to advise herself, to perceive, to learn about, to consider, and to gaze at. In other words, Dinah, as she came into this new land and she saw what was going on in the city of Shechem, she realized that she wasn't comfortable or familiar with who she was or who she was supposed to be. And thus she went into a place in the world, in the land of Canaan, and she was gazing at or looking at the daughters of the land with the intent of comparing herself with them, advising herself through what she observed, in order to figure out who it was that she was supposed to be. In other words, Dinah's mistake is that she was looking to the world in order to try to figure out who she was. That was Dinah's mistake. In the modern era, it would be very much the equivalent of Dinah going to the Apple store, buying herself an iPhone 8, downloading instagram pinterest facebook and you know and all the others and looking into what the world says back that this is what you're supposed to be this is what you're supposed to wear this is how you're supposed to act this is what makes a woman a woman and looking to the world to catch those cues and to understand that place of identity she was looking at the world to figure out who she was now here's the problem Problem number one with that you might want to write this down mom young daughter young girl grandparent mentor spiritual leader The problem with looking at the world to figure out your identity is that you can't find it there You'll never be able to find your identity by looking at the world trying to figure it out Anyone who looks at the world to try to figure out what they're supposed to be or who they are is ordering off of a very small menu Oh, it could be a large menu. It's a diner menu. You know, a diner menu has like 50 pages, right? You got like one minute. (laughs) What am I going to have? And it's, it can be a large menu. There might be 50 things on there. Well, do I want to be a jock? Do I want to be a a scholar? Do I want to be a debater? Do I want to be a politician? Do I want to be an entertainer? Am I into drama or the arts? Okay, well, if I do that, okay, I read the description. Okay, dresses in baggy clothes or wears tight pants and shiny sneakers. Oh, I like that. That sounds kind of good. It's ordering off of a menu. It's trying to figure out what I am and using the world as the cues to do that. The problem is with God. The variations are limitless, and your chances of finding who you are on the world's menu are absolutely zero. You'll never find it there. While I was preparing this part of this message, I was sitting at my dining room table very early in the morning. And I love the summer mornings when the sun rises way before the people do. And as I was sitting there, the bird uh, feeder was hanging from the gutter right outside of the dining room window and a rose-breasted grosbeak. And yes, I knew what that was without looking it up. (laughs) Landed and started swinging on the bird feeder and just started pecking away at this thing And I don't know what that's called that georgia puts in there, you know filled with honey and peanut butter and all the rest. And I just watched this thing and it's the most incredible looking bird and the the feathers and the colors and this red Spot that's right here and this parrot beak and the shape of the thing and I just stared at this thing and i'm going man lord The things that you make, your ability to create, and the uniqueness of it and the beauty of it, Lord, no one can create like you. Here's the truth concerning you. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The exact word, so that I don't mess it up with my paraphrasing, David says this. He says, I will praise you or thank you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In in the Hebrew, it means I am wonderfully complex. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. Now listen to verse 15. He says, my substance, that is the stuff that I'm made out of, the very things that are undefinable and that are unspoken, that you can't see, that you can't describe, you can't replicate that you can't change because they're put deep inside in the untouchable place. My substance, he says, was not hid from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes did see my substance being yet unperfect, and in your book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God, you made me so wonderfully complex the way that I think and feel and appreciate and express and create and who I am and what I am. God, your hand and mind authored all of that. You made me what I am. And he caps it off by saying in verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts unto me O oh god it means literally how valuable am i in your sight i am valued by you god now you take the world's menu of what it offers it can make you by you looking at it and saying i choose to be that And then you look at God's menu and ability. Look around the room right now. Do you see anyone else that looks like you? Is there anyone else that thinks exactly like you? Appreciates, thinks, feels, and creates exactly like you? No, we are all so incredibly uniquely different. And for you and I to seek to draw our identity and find ourselves in what the world says that we're supposed to be, we will miss the mark by a mile every time. Because God says, I alone know what you are. And if we look to the world to try to define us, then we'll miss the mark. That was Dinah's first error. God says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 that we are complete in Christ Jesus. You will find your identity and who you are in looking to him and to him alone. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 1. God speaks by the prophet Isaiah through his spirit and he says hearken to me you that follow after righteousness You that seek the lord look unto the rock From which you are hewn into the hole of the pit from which you are digged." In other words, if you want to find out who you are and what you're made of then you look to the place where you were created We cannot find it in the world Dinah sought to She went out to see the daughters of the land the second problem With what dinah is seeking to do here. Not only that she's not going to find her identity in the world But the world can't give her what she needs See what Dinah needs What she's longing for and wants is love And the world cannot The world cannot Produce love The world can entertain The world can gratify Temporarily The world can promise And the world can lie The world can seduce and deceive The world can allure But the world cannot produce love That alone comes from god because the bible says that god is love And that the world is at enmity with him God cannot i'm, sorry the world cannot produce what only god can You and I we were made to be loved and that love can only come from god. Let me ask you The woman at the well who had five husbands, you know the story. I don't have to tell it to you The harlot who is cast down nakedly at the feet of Jesus in John chapter 8. Mary Magdalene who lived such a shady lifestyle that it says that Jesus had to cast seven demons out of her. What is it, what was it about Jesus Christ that caused their lives to be revolutionized and changed? What causes someone who's at that level of depravity and lostness to so completely turn and be changed to where their devotion is 100 percent completely on someone who can give them nothing in the physical it's love it's that they knew that they were loved by jesus in a way that they could never be loved by anyone or anything in the world and they were so changed by it that he became their all in all and listen young girl young daughter person here who's looking for still your identity somewhere or finding love in something that you think it can come from it can only come from god but when you get it from there it changes you it makes you what nothing else ever could it completes you it makes you complete in christ the world doesn't love you the third problem and it's the overlooked problem when it comes to what many of our young girls are looking into Trying to find themselves Is that at the same time dinah is looking At the daughters of the land The sons of the land are looking at dinah It tells us in verse 2 that shechem saw dinah And he took her And he laid with her and he defiled her And not only that but she was captive in his house We're not going to get there tonight But we'll find out that she had to be rescued from his clutches Because she was taken into his very house There are many young girls In our world today Probably countless Way more than we could even comprehend That have been taken captive By the world To be what they think that they should But what they are not Giving in to the styles The lifestyles The trends The personalities That they think they should be In order to become what they're not And they get locked up in that situation I think one of the hardest things would be to be an actor Because when you're an actor you have to act all the time and acting is fun in short bursts But when you have to pretend to be something you're not on a continual basis that gets real hard And when I take my cues from the world And I let myself be defined by what the world says that I should be I find myself perpetually having to act a part of something that I am not God didn't make us to be that And we get locked up Now dinah's problem in all this and we're almost finished Dinah's problem in all of this was not rebellion It wasn't that she was ignoring the rule of her parents or what they had to say It wasn't that she was necessarily vulnerable. She was normal. She was a young girl. This is normal. It wasn't ingratitude and looking outside of what she already had to find something that she did it. None of those things were the problem that Dinah had in this. The problem that Dinah had was a value problem, is that she didn't know her value. She didn't recognize or believe her value, and she was seeking to find it in something not knowing that it already existed. I heard one speaker recently and he said these words. He said that the problem with our kids these days is not drugs, it's not violence, it's not sex, it's not all the things that we see going on that we're preaching against and complaining about. He said, that's not the problem. He said, the problem with our kids is a value problem. He said, when people don't know that they're valuable, then people don't act like they're valuable. And thus, the actions and things that are being expressed in the young people of this day and age. Are the result of the fact that they don't know what they're worth Listen, this is common. This isn't just with young people. This was with jacob I mean what happened to jacob just a couple of days ago? He was wrestling with jesus remember And when jacob was wrestling with jesus, what did jesus say to jacob? He said what's your name? He goes tell me what's your name? And it was the first time in jacob's life that he answered honestly Every other time. Remember what Isaac, his father said, what's your name? He said, I'm Esau. I'm Esau. I'm Esau. Well, the voice is Jacob's. You look like you smell. I mean, what do you mean? Who is, Who is this? No, no, it's Esau. It's, uh, you would never accept Jacob. Jacob's unacceptable before you. I mean, Jesus gets a hold of him, wrestles him all night, and he looks at him he says, what's your name? What's your name? He said, Jacob. His name is Jacob. Yes, I didn't make two Esau's. I made a Jacob. And the word says, Jacob, have I loved? Do you understand that God made you and that God loves you, your name? He's not waiting for you to be something else that you're not. He's not waiting for you to catch on and get it and fit in and make the mold. God made you and he loves you. What's your name? jacob now you've prevailed see it wasn't just dinah it's all of us we're complete in christ and you're valuable you're valued by god your your substance is precious to him he says what's the truth of the matter in all of this the truth of the matter is this number one is that god loves you more than you love yourself and we love ourselves believe me i don't need to illustrate you can challenge me on it later i will win Number two, God knows you better than you know yourself. And if you seek to order off some cheap menu that the world says that you should be, young girl, old man, whoever you are, you will come incredibly short and you will miss the mark by a mile. Because God knows what he made you to be. You'll find your identity in him. Number three, God accepts you for who you are. God will anoint you for who you are in your personality in the way that it is expressed. And God values who you are. It's what he made that he will bless and anoint. Not what we try to make ourselves. He accepts you. And number four. His completion brings freedom and joy. In him. When we find ourselves in him. Parents. Set your kids free with truth. Daughter, you belong to another kingdom, to another king. Our job as parents is not to mold our kids into something that we think they should be, but to unfold what God has put there and to speak truth into their lives. We can close. The worship team can come. When, when JFK Jr., I know this is going back a ways, crashed his plane there was a lot of speculation conspiracy and you know what happened did he commit suicide did he not know his plane did he did his instruments in in the cockpit did they fail him and there was all this banter and chatter about what really happened to jfk jr and and they were interviewing a pilot and they were asking him these questions and they said to him you know in asking asking about it they said um do you think that He didn't know his instruments in his plane or that his instruments failed And the pilot replied and said absolutely not He said every pilot is trained on the instruments of the plane that they're flying they know their instruments And he said well, do you think the instruments failed?" He said no, I don't think so. I think uh, those things are pretty reliable They didn't they didn't but he said here's what I will tell you this experienced pilot said to the one asking the questions He said that when you're up there sometimes and you get into the clouds and you become disoriented He said, sometimes you will swear that you are upside down even though you're right side up because things are just so uh, unequivocated to the way that you feel in the situation. He said, what happened to him and probably what happens most of the time, it's not that his instruments failed, it's that he stopped believing them. That's what he said. He stopped believing his instruments. And he said, what happens then is that you go into a death spiral. He said, because what happens is you begin to make decisions based upon your feelings, the way you feel in the situation, rather than what your instruments say about the circumstance. And so you make an adjustment, and then that adjustment leads to another adjustment, and the next thing you know that you're in a death spiral. The same thing happens to human beings every single day. Whether it be the anxiety of a Jacob, the curiosity of a Dinah, we go out into a situation, and because this world is what it is, sometimes we get confused, don't we? And our head gets in the clouds, we lose sight of what's valuable, what's important, and what's true, and we begin to make adjustments and decisions based upon the way that we feel, based rather than upon what the instruments say. And the challenge of God to you tonight, whether you be the anxious side of the study, or whether you be the Dinah side of the study, or anything in between, Trust your instruments. Believe what God says about you. Believe what God says to you. Hold to the promises that He has given. He is faithful and He'll keep His word. And you'll get there. Father, we thank you tonight for these things. And oh Lord, there's so much in your truth. We're, we're so grateful for it. And we, we fall so short of understanding all of it. But Lord, tonight we recognize that we have a God who navigates. God who guides, most of all a God who loves, a God who cares and I pray tonight dear Lord that whatever is needed in the life of those that have heard I pray Lord that you would plant your seed there and that you'd make it live oh Father we fall so short our faith can be so weak sometimes our love tank can be so empty our need can be more than what we can bear but Lord you tell us that you're the God that meets every need you call yourself the I am And so it's our prayer and desire tonight, O Lord, that you would meet with us right here, right where we are. And we declare to you, Lord, that we're sorry for the times and in the ways that we haven't trusted you, where we've taken our lives into our own hands and gone our own way, where we sent out 500 animals and bought a maybe. Or where we've looked at the world trying to find the purpose for our life rather than looking to the rock from which we are hewn. Tonight, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We believe that you're able, that you're willing, that you're wanting to make us complete in Christ Jesus. So where we fall in short, oh God, fill those empty places. Where we've looked outside, forgive us, and set us free. Where we've become bound up in Hamor's house, trying to be something that we're not. And we're tired of the bondage that it's created for us. Oh God, would you come? Would you speak your value? Would you wrestle us to the ground? Would you ask us our name? Would you set us free? Would you make us whole? Perhaps you're here tonight and... You don't know Jesus Christ personally and your whole life just bears the marks of a menu that someone else has thrust upon you. Tonight you're invited to receive by faith the gift of God's salvation to be free, to be forgiven, to be whole. Your name would be written in heaven that you would know the love and the purpose that you were created for. If you want to know Jesus Christ we sing this last song and Invite you to come come to the altar and just give your life to God. Say, God, here am I. I need you. I believe you. I trust you. Help my weakness. You're here in Christ tonight. You know him. You've walked with him. But your head is in the clouds and your plane is in a spin. You've listened to the lies. You've believed in the allurements of the world. The marks of it are on you. Invite you the same to say, Lord, tonight these chains, they've gotten heavy. This acting, this searching for something that I don't even know what it is anymore or what I set out for. But I want to believe you. I want to know you. Come to the altar. Say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, set me free. Lord, change me. Open my eyes. Open my understanding. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my husband. Be my Father. Be the one that I would look at and my whole life would be changed. Seven demons cast out. Never again to be what I was. Find me here, Lord. He'll find you here.